you would, and open up to the book of James this morning. Uh, We're going to be in James chapter 1, 1 through 4. We did finish uh, the book of Exodus. James chapter 1. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness and steadfastness have uh, and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Let's pray this morning. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, Lord, uh, we come into your presence today and um, we just thank you for your grace and your mercy. We pray, Lord, that as we think about trials, that you would help us to rejoice in the midst of them. It seems like an impossible task, Lord, and yet you are the one who sends your spirit, who works in our hearts, who lifts our souls to look to you. We pray that you would do that. We pray that your spirit would minister to us during this time, during this uh, sermon. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I'll, uh, I'll be completely honest with you this, mor- this morning. I wanted to skip this passage. A while back, I, I decided that I was done. Uh, when I was done with Exodus, uh, I had actually planned this when we were finishing Romans. I decided, okay, well, we'll do something in the Old Testament, Exodus, uh, and we'll, we'll do something else after that. I'd actually asked AJ when I was finishing up Romans, uh, you know, what do you think I should, should preach next? And she said, James. And I was like, no, well, okay, but I I really want to do Exodus because, you know, Old Testament, it would be fun. I'd originally planned just for Exodus to kind of go just the summer. And uh, here we are November 1st, and we just finished Exodus last week. So that didn't quite work out. Uh, But I do take this as the providence of God and and uh, the listening and prompting of my wife and maybe the Holy Spirit, too, uh, that James was planned uh, well in advance. So I didn't feel like I could I could just. Uh, bail on it. So we'll start James, and then of course we get into the Thanksgiving and Christmas uh, season. I do think it's appropriate that that uh, that it came up this week then too that we we prayed for for Keith and Carol and and the trial uh, that they're going through. And I'm sure many of us have trials or can think of trials or know of people uh, that are going in tr- through trials. Our main point this morning is simply this: there is a joy in trials. Uh, There is a joy in trials, and we certainly uh, don't understand. We often don't understand, and we certainly don't feel it. Trial hurts. Uh, It would not be called trials uh, if it was nice and and easy and pain-free and fun. There's a whole purpose that it's called a trial. But in trial, there is a joy that comes from the Lord. So first this morning, count your trials as joy. Count it all joy. Look at verse one. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Now, uh, I did look up the word count. Uh, It means more than just, you know, counting with your fingers. But it is to engage in an intellectual process, if you will, to to think, to consider, to regard. So so think of the obvious, right? Trials don't feel joyous. I, I, I don't think that's 
anything that anybody would want to debate and be like, no, pastor, you're wrong. Uh, trials do feel like a good thing. No, trials don't feel joyous. No one takes the pain of the trial and says, we, I like this. This fun. And so we have to engage our minds and we have to engage our hearts. We need to learn to think of them in a specific way. We have to learn to think of things with the mind of Christ. I'm not going to pretend that that is easy, but we need to learn to look at the trial and actually think against what our feelings tell us about trials and what our natural inclinations are to think about trials. So consider your trial a joy. Do not get discouraged in the midst of a trial. Do not say, woe is me, and, and throw yourself a pity party as much as we, we want to and are tempted to. Now, this doesn't mean that there aren't sometimes in trials things that God needs us or wants us or is prompting us to repent of. But if a trial brings you closer to God, that closeness is a wonderful thing. You have to look at God and say, what is God going to use this trial for? And God has a purpose in all things. And that purpose is for the believer. That purpose for the believer is to conform us to the image of the son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Think of how a sword is made, and, and especially really strong swords. And, and you think of like the, the, the katanas, the Japanese samurai swords, and, and they take lots of thin layers of metal. And, and you put the sword in the forge, and you heat it. Trial. You pull the sword out, you put it on a heavy anvil, and you pound it. Or sometimes you fold layers of metal over, and then you pound it together. And then you stick it back in the fire. And you heat it, trial. You pound it, trial. You heat it, trial. Over and over again. And these, these, you know, these expensive ancient uh, Japanese swords, I mean, they are like some of the strongest metal and the sharpest swords uh, in the history of mankind. And it's because they've been tempered by the heat and the hammer. Dear believer, the trial which comes is the providence of God. The trial that comes that is the providence of God is not meant to break you. God is not up in heaven waiting to see you break and be crushed. God often allows your trial to come so that he can turn you into something beautiful. You think about how the most beautiful of diamonds are forged, are shaped under the strongest of pressures. And just like a diamond is formed under the hardest of pressure, so strong Christians who are transformed to bear the image of Christ and reflect the, the glory of God, they will be made beautiful in trials. You consider a trial a joy, not because you enjoy the pain, but because you look to God and trust him with the outcome. Hebrews 2, uh, Hebrews chapter 12, verses uh, two to three describes this of Jesus. Jesus didn't like the pain of the cross, but he looked to what is ahead. 
And so we're to look to Jesus. It says, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary and faint-hearted. Don't grow weary and faint-hearted in your trials. You will meet trials of various kinds. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. You will, you will meet trials as surely as the sun rises and the sun sets. The Christian will meet trials as surely as the sun rises and the sun sets. We often have this wrong notion of Christianity that if I am walking with God, if my relationship is good with God, God will spare me from every hardship, every trial, every difficult situation in life. And even sometimes we tell people or we think for ourselves, I wouldn't be going through this right now if my faith was stronger. Or you wouldn't be in this right now if your faith was stronger. It's kind of saying it's your fault because you're not trusting God. And if you have ever walked through a trial, been next to someone losing a loved one, you know they're crying out to God and they're desperate. And God is still walking them through this trial. For it has been granted, Philippians chapter 1, 29 and 30, for it has been granted to you for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw that I had and now hear that I'm still having or that I still have. Are you a child of God? Do you have the Holy Spirit within you? Then listen to the words of Paul. The spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if we are children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ provided We suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed. Just like suffering is the road that Christ walked so that he could be raised up in glory and majesty of the resurrection, so also suffering. This is why the Gospels talk about us bearing our cross. It's the road That is set before the believer. You will meet trials of various kinds. No Christian in this life will walk quite the same path, quite the exact set of trials or in the exact same order or in the exact same degree. But you will face trials of all sorts of categories. And Paul says in 2 Corinthians 12, 9 and 10, But God said to me, My grace is sufficient for you. My power made perfect in your weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, with insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. 
Notice he lists various types of trials, sufferings, weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, which I take there to be the physical times that he suffered. So, so notice he, he did suffer insults, which is probably more common for us in America with our Christianity. But he also suffered persecution, which is also probably more common uh, in other places around the world. But even just calamities were trials. He was shipwrecked a number of times. That would maybe be the modern day equivalent of of being in a car accident, a a big car accident uh, or a bus accident or or maybe even an airplane accident that you survive. Those are trials. I think it's safe to say that there is no trial that the believer in Christ may not be called to go through. I can only think of one exception that the believer in Christ as a trial will not have to go through. The believer will never have to go through the trial of being cut off from the love of God in Christ. Listen to Romans, and I'm I'm sure you know uh, these verses very well. Who shall separate us from the love of God or the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Trials do not separate you from the love of God. They cannot separate you. They can bring stress. They can bring physical weakness. You can lose weight, maybe. You can have sleepless nights. You might have incredible illnesses. You might have to lose a limb. You might lose a loved one, a spouse, a parent, a job loss, illness, pain, grief, sickness, death, insults. But you will not lose the love of God in Christ. Cling to that in your trial. Think of how the Lord is using this to draw you closer to him, to assure you of his love as you are losing all the things that are around you or some of the things that are around you that are important to you, that matter. But God is using it to show you That he alone matters the most. Christ is sufficient. And in a trial, you have to be asking yourself, is Christ going to be enough? That doesn't mean we don't rely on friends or family or other people or gather with the church and say, I'm going through a trial. I need your help. I need people to lift this burden. I need someone to walk with me. It's a a precious thing when brothers and sisters in Christ walk with you through a trial. But Christ alone is our ultimate and true need. You will never be separated from the love of God in Christ. The believer in Christ will never The believer in Christ will never go through the trial that the Lord Jesus Christ went through. 
the bearing of the wrath of God for condemnation. Do you understand what I'm saying there? That Jesus Christ on the cross, His trial, His suffering was that God poured out the eternal wrath for sin onto His beloved Son so that Jesus Christ could die and save us and He loved us that much and the Father loved us that much. And no matter what your trial is, you will never go through being separated from the love of God. You will never bear the wrath of God for eternal condemnation. Second, this morning, when faith is tested, it becomes steadfast. Faith tested becomes steadfast. Faith is tested. This is part of the nature of trials. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. So you start there. For you know that the testing of your faith, the trial will test your faith. It will stretch you. It will ask you. It will force you to ask tough questions. You will go through desperation and you will you will ask yourself, can I or am I going to cry out to Christ? Is that enough? And you might even I would encourage you if you're going through a trial, read the Psalms, read the lament Psalms. Uh, when I was up in Mount Pocono uh, and having a, just a tough time in ministry, uh, ironically, I actually found comfort reading the book of Jeremiah. And I said, well, at least nobody's trying to throw me into a cistern. And I would read the lament Psalms and I would hear the cries and I would pray the cries. And then I would get to the point where he would say, and my enemies are trying to kill me. And I said, well, God, I guess I'm not doing that bad. Nobody's trying to kill me. At the same time, I don't think that it's inappropriate to spiritualize the role of the enemies in those psalms when you read them. Sometimes the enemy is the evil one. Sometimes the enemies are, are good people that mean well, but for whatever reason, they're attacking you. Now, don't pray down the imprecatory psalms on them or something like that. But sometimes... You feel like your opponents, people that you want to be at peace with, come from those closest to you or those inside the church. But you can identify with the groaning of the psalmist. A friend of mine brought up a good point to me recently. And he said, sometimes we think that the best prayers that we pray are the wordy ones. The ones that are eloquent. The ones that speak highly of God. The ones that are, that are theologically reflective and deep. The ones that say it just right for what that need is. The reality is sometimes the best prayers are the ones that just cry out and can only say help. The groanings of the psalmist, the groanings that we feel. You know there is a testing of your faith in trials. And there are two kinds of tests, I think, two kinds of categories of tests over overall. Just speaking of tests in general. The first kind 
is the test where you want something to break. So think of like, like crash dummy car tests. Like, like you slam that car into a, a wall as fast as you possibly can or whatever the parameters are because you want the car to break so you can say, oh, okay, now I know what the car can live up to. Now I know what its standard is. Now I know where its braking point is. Now I know how i got to design a better car. But you don't care about that car. That was just scrap metal. And you ran it into the wall so that you could build something different and better. It's, it's kind of like uh, testing the weight limit on a rope. The purpose of that test is to pull the rope so that it rips. And then you say, oh, okay, this rope is weighted to be able to hold 500 pounds or, or whatever. The tests and trials that God brings into our lives are not that kind. Oh, let me see when they'll rip, and then I can build and have a better Christian that's not them because, you know, I just got to throw them out because they're broken now. The trials of the Christian are of a different sort. There's another kind of test. It's the kind of test, and and we could use more than just the word test, but it's the kind of test or trial that's like building a muscle. If any of you lift weights, the basic principle of lifting weights is you put strain on the muscles. Your goal in lifting weights is to not say, let's see how much I can put on the bar so that I can tear these muscles. Like, how awful would that be? Like, you want to bulk up, and so you just put 500 pounds uh, on, a, on a curl bar, and you just, you know, boom, and your hands are going to drop it, and, and uh, if you try to hold on to it, your arms are going to tear or pull out of the socket. That is not how you lift weights. You lift weights by, by slowly stressing them. And sometimes you do load on more weight. But the purpose of lifting the weights, the purpose of the stress and the trial is to fashion and shape your muscles into something stronger. Into something more, I was going to say more better. Uh, That's bad English. But something better than what they were. You test the muscle and you put it through a rigorous workout because the goal is not to see the muscle tear, but it's the resistance of the weight, that the cause of the stress that, that forces the muscle to grow. And so God uses trials in our lives as stressors so that it forces our Christian life to grow. It's that idea of purifying metal where you heat it up and the impurities and the, the dross rise to the surface and you scoop it off and the metal is more beautiful than when you started. Peter talks about this. First Peter chapter 1, verses 6-8. through eight. In this you rejoice. Uh, it's interesting also that you, know, you have counted all joy. Now you have here saying, in this we rejoice. Paul will also say we rejoice in your trials. You know, it's almost like God is trying to tell us something. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes through it, is tested by fire, may be found 
to result in the praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is an inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your soul. The genuineness of your faith is tested not because God doesn't know if you have faith or not. The genuineness of your faith is tested not because God wants to see you break so he can say, ah, see, I knew they didn't really believe in me. The genuineness of your faith is tested so that what results may be to the praise and the glory and the honor when Jesus Christ returns. Not your praise, not your glory, not your honor, but praise in Christ that he walked you through this. Glory in Christ that he was your only hope and honor to Christ that he sustained you through this. God wants to produce in you through trials a steadfastness. Look at verse 3, if you will. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Steadfastness is this capacity to hold out, to to bear up in the face of difficulty, to hold on to something, to, to not lose ground, to be immovable, to be patient, to have endurance, fortitude, perseverance even. Steadfastness. It means just what it sounds like. God wants to show you that he and that his grace will sustain you. And sometimes God weans us off of everything else in life so that he alone is our sustainer. And this is Paul, again, as we've already read it. But God, or what he said to me, This is Paul having this thorn in this flesh, this trial and praying, Lord, take this away. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then, then I am strong. When all you have is God, and I know it's a cliche, but when all you have is God, God has this way of showing us that he's all we need. In trial, as I said, God often weans us from our comforts, our delights, our even earthly joys, even good gifts that he has given us, so that we'll trust in him, so that we would find that he alone is sufficient. Romans chapter 5, verses 3 through 5, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. There it is again. Rejoice. Count it all joy. We rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, Endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, 
who has been given to us. God comes to his children in trials. In 2 Corinthians, he talks about being the God of all comforts who comforts us so that we, in turn, can comfort others. Sometimes God walks you through a trial so that when someone else goes through a trial, you can comfort them. It's amazing to me when you go through a trial, you often think to yourself, I'm the only one who's ever been here. I mean, that's stupid, right? <laughs> but, but I think there is this element of like really bad trials we don't talk about in the church. Like we keep it in and, and really good Christians shouldn't show the weakness. And, and we say, oh, yeah, yeah, God is great. God walked me through it. But we don't really talk about the depths of what a trial is. And there's a comfort when someone says to you, I've been exactly where you are. Circumstances might be a little bit different, but I've been there. And God was good. God will be good. Your trial might not end the same way that my trial ended. But God will be good. I would say this is one for me of the encouragements of reading Christian biographies. A number of years back, I started reading some Christian biographies of some pastors in church history. And it started when I I found a little book by John Piper that talked about suffering. And um, he did like three short bios of um, uh, heroes in church history, like like pastors and theologians. People that like, like I have their books on my bookshelf and I read them and wow, all this rich theology. And and you think like, wow, they must have never had any trials because they are so godly. They wrote all these awesome books. And then you read their life. We don't know much about John Owen's life because he burned all his journals when he died. I think, I think that's what it was. I think, I think John Fulcomer told, reminded me of that the other week. He burned all his journals when he died. <laughs> Didn't want people to know. I, I don't know if that's wise or not. But I, I, I do remember reading somewhere, you know, he had a family and he had a whole number of kids. And, of course, they grew up in the days before modern medicine. And they lost a lot of their kids I don't remember the exact number, but it was a lot. And you read, he has books on the glory of Christ, the power of the Holy Spirit. And yet this was a man shaped by trials. There's another guy I really like, Charles Simeon. Didn't even know about him until I happened to find uh, out about him. And he was a pastor at his church for, I think it was 50 years in, in England, uh, outside of, uh, outside of uh, Cambridge, I, I believe it was. And I think it was like the first 20 or 25 were really, really hard. Like this was in the days where, where the Anglican uh, churches, you, you bought your pew. Uh, so like your tithe, uh, you had your seat. I know sometimes we joke around, you know, like, well, this is my seat. But no, you really had your seat. And it had like a little gate and you could lock the gate. Uh, and then, you know, you would come and you would sit in. And, and people were so mad at, at him as a pastor they locked their pews and wouldn't let anyone sit in. They didn't come. They locked their own pews. It, it would be like if you showed up on a Sunday, put your Bible in the seat, put your coat there, and then left and made people think there was someone sitting there and kept people from sitting in the, in the pews. 
There was one time he always went out through the front door of the church at the end of the day, uh, and he just happened through circumstances uh, to go out a side door. And here it was at the front door. There were people waiting to beat him up. Thankfully, I don't think anybody's going to be waiting to beat me up this morning when we leave. But it's encouraging when you hear from other Christians common example. Oftentimes in families, women have miscarriages. And sometimes when there's a miscarriage, the temptation is to not talk about it or to think you're the only one. And then you start talking about it. And you realize, here's this dear old saint in the Lord, 80 years old. You don't even think of her having kids because she's 80 years old. And when she was young, she had a miscarriage or lost a child or whatever it might have been. Your saints around you know what it's like to go through trials. Steadfastness makes you mature in Christ. Verse 4, and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. The outcome of your being steadfastness in your trial, being steadfast in your trial, is that you will be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Now, uh, James here doesn't mean that, that like in this life you're not going to ever have sins. And sometimes the trials that we get into, you know, they're a combination of we were innocent and sometimes they're a combination of, you know, we have some faults and somebody else has some faults and you can't even get down to the bottom of what caused it. But God can still use it. And so it says here when you will be perfect, perfect has this idea of perfect and complete has this idea of of reaching real Christian maturity. God's will is to turn you into a stronger Christian. That you would be a better reflection of the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so Paul is writing in 1 Corinthians 1.28 and he talks about his ministry that, that him we proclaim teaching everyone with all wisdom. And he says that we may present everyone mature in Christ. It's that same word used in James for perfect. The goal of his ministry is that the last day to present these saints as people who have grown up in the Lord, who are mature. Of course, when we get to heaven and when we have our glorified bodies, we will be morally perfect. But even in this life, your suffering serves to mature you and your Christian walk. Think of how anemic Think of how anemic we would be if we never had trials. Think of it this way. If we all lived up in space and there was no gravity and we're floating around, what happens to our muscle mass? We lose it. The athletes, uh, or the astronauts up, up in space, they have to figure out ways to, to exercise and keep their mass up. And they can't say like, OK, I'm going to lift weights. Right. There's no gravity. So, you know, yeah, look how much I put on today on the weight. Uh, I put on, you know, 
10 45-pound plates. But when there's gravity, gravity builds your muscles and you're not anemic. Then there's this word complete. So we'll be made perfect and complete. Complete uh, and, and meeting uh, it, it means to, to be complete and meeting all expectations. It means to, with integrity, whole, complete, undamaged, intact, blameless. It's sort of like this idea of perfect or mature, but it, but it flushes it out a little bit. Whole, complete, undamaged, intact. This to me is interesting. Undamaged and intact. It's interesting here that in suffering, in the hardship that often feels like incredible damage and a wrecking of us, God's goal is to make you whole, complete, undamaged, and intact. It it seems like an oxymoron. Suffering, breaking you, trials, weight, heaviness, so that you can be intact. There is a great mystery that God would add to us, add to our character, add to our love for him, add to a strengthening of our faith, that God would add to us by taking away that we would lack nothing by losing everything or by at least losing something. And God never promises that when he brings suffering, he will bring everything back. God hasn't promised Keith that if we go to his house to hospital bed today and we just pray over him, he will get up out of that bed and be cancer free. It's just not a promise. Unless the Lord returns, Keith is going to die. And that's a trial. And that's a suffering. But Keith, as far as he has professed faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, will be in the glory of God. You think of Job. And he lost his entire family and all his kids. And we always tell the story of Job. And God gave everything back to him at the end. And he gave it in even more abundance. So so he had all these kids, all these families, all all this family, riches, uh, cattle, uh, all of these things. And we always skip to the end of the story after we've read through it. We go, yeah, he got everything back and he got even more. That is not the point. Of the story of Job. Like, like you just do, you know, like in English class where you do the plot diagrams and you say, here's the introduction and here's the rising action and here's the climax of the story and then here's kind of the resolution, the wrapping up details. It's like one or two verses at the end where it says, oh yeah, by the way, Job got stuff back. That's like, that's like the wrapping up details. That's not the climax of the story. That's not the point of the events of Job's life. point of the story is that Job learned who God was. Like really learned. Job 42.5 I had heard 
of you by the hearing of the ears. But now my eyes sees you. This is how we'll come to lack nothing. I want to end this morning by doing something a little bit different. I'm going to play an audio clip by uh, John Piper. And it's a little clip that came across my radar this week. And it's called The Seminary of Suffering. And it's John Piper, so he says things way better than I can. And so it's just a short clip, and we're going to pray it. We're going to end there with that, and then we're going to take communion. So go ahead and play that. October 31, the seminary of suffering. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. 2 Corinthians 12:9. This is God's universal purpose for all Christian suffering. More contentment in God and less reliance on self and the world. I have never heard anyone say, the really deep lessons of life have come through times of ease and comfort. But I have heard strong saints say, every significant advance I have ever made in grasping the depth of God's love and growing deep with Him has come through suffering. The pearl of greatest price is the glory of Christ. Thus, Paul stresses that in our sufferings, the glory of Christ's all-sufficient grace is magnified. If we rely on Him in our calamity, and He sustains our rejoicing in hope, then He is shown to be the all-satisfying God of grace and strength that He is. If we hold fast to Him when all around our soul gives way, then we show that He is more to be desired than all we have lost. Christ said to the suffering apostle, My grace is sufficient for you, For my power is made perfect in weakness. Paul responded to this. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak... Then I am strong. 2 Corinthians 12, 9 and 10. So, suffering clearly is designed by God not only as a way to wean Christians off of self and onto grace, but also as a way to spotlight that grace and make it shine. That is precisely what faith does. It magnifies Christ's future grace. The deep things of life in God are discovered and magnified in suffering.